You know, last week I spoke about um, the demise of Queen Elizabeth II, and I spoke uh, a lot about, you know, what I thought it all meant, and uh, certainly uh, the concept of Britain, Great Britain, you know, England and so on, you know. So I I thought it would be an interesting opportunity to just continue that thinking into certain ideas that people don't realize about the concept of royalty. And I wanted to compare that to the Torah's idea of royalty, uh, you see. And um, I I can start, well, before I start the lecture, actually, uh, this year should be a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshaya ben Yisrael. You know, there's something that we can ask. You know, we know that all, every society, what, what is a society that forms a country or a nation or whatever? Well, it's a group of people that have decided that there's a lot of commonalities between them. Uh, that's really what uh, unites them. And that they want to be, you know, live together. They want to uh, be involved in similar activities as as a group. And that group is really a nation. But we know that every nation needs a government. You see, it needs, uh, you know, some type of an official legal body that in many ways will control what goes on in the nation, especially... Uh, when nations have to live by the rule of law. Because if not, then it's what's called in Hebrew, hefkir, and uh, it's very dangerous. That means when everybody will want to do what they want to do, irrespective of uh, what somebody else feels or holds, then that nation becomes uh, very dangerous. Like it says in Pirkei in Mole Malchus, if it wasn't for the fear of the kingdom then everybody would destroy, everybody would eat everybody else while they're alive. They wouldn't even wait till they're dead. So clearly without, without a government that adheres to laws, <clears throat> obviously such a society, whether that society becomes a nation or a country or whatever, obviously cannot survive. But the truth is the concept of a malchus, of a kingdom, in many ways, uh, I view it as a very profound concept. You know, like for instance, take the American government. You know, <clears throat> every government has to have uh, several functions in order to do their job. The first function is you have to have some type of an institution that makes laws. Hopefully, the laws will be just and righteous and so on. But there has to be some type of institution that will make the law. You know, they will promulgate laws and that becomes the legal behavior, so to speak, of that nation because they all have to adhere to the laws. So they need a legislature. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need, well, you need somebody to interpret the laws because many times laws are either not understood or the problem is how do you apply the law in many different circumstances. So you need what is called a judiciary to interpret the laws because obviously there are many, many different types of situations. So even if you have a law, it may be just in one situation and not in another. So you obviously need some type of a body of individuals that will interpret the laws in order for the society to function. Then besides those two, the legislature or the judiciary, you need what's called executive. Well, somebody has to run or somebody has to be responsible to execute the laws, to make sure that the laws are kept, adhered to, you know, and that's really what's called the executive branch. So you have these three branches of government. You have the legislature that makes the laws. 
the judiciary that interprets the laws in any given situation, and the third branch of government would be the executive that obviously enforces the laws. They execute the laws, make sure that the laws are kept. You see, and it's part, of course, as part of the executive, you have the the uh, the uh, the uh, police. You know, the people who are actually go out and are emissaries of the executive to to obviously to uh, observe the laws and so on. So in America, what they did, which is really brilliant when you think about that, <clears throat> what they did is instead of all of these functions being in the hands of one person, the executive to enforce the laws, legislature to make the laws, and judiciary to judge, you know, instead of being in the hands of one person, it's instead different branches of government. That's what they did. And that was a tremendously wise decision because obviously the founders of America, they were very concerned with tyranny because that's what they experienced from England because, you know, they were a colony in the original, you know, the, uh, repo- the 13 um, colonies. They were all under, you know, uh, England, the King of England. In any case, this is the concept of a government and what the functions of a government are and the fact that it has to have these three abilities. And, you know, in America, these three functions are given over to three different separate branches of government. Very important concept. Now, however, there are many nations that do not have, that doesn't have, you know, executive legislature and judiciary, right, as three distinct forms. Instead, it's in the hands of a king. So there's the concept of royalty, where you have a king and a queen, you know, it's it's an entire group of people that they are assigned to lead a nation. And therefore, all three functions are really in their hands, you see. So, for instance, a king or a queen, if she's the uh, authority of that country, right, they will make laws, they will interpret the laws, and the king or queen will execute the laws. And in in that way, it's in the hands of one person, you see. So that's a very important concept. Now, when you take a look at the Torah, so this is the, the concept of the structure of a government. Now, when you take a look at the Torah, what is the government that the Torah says should be done, should be used, and so on? And that's a very important idea because the Torah is the mind God of God. And therefore, it's perfect. This is what he says is the best form of government, you see. And therefore, the Torah says, I will tell you what type of government I want. And obviously, according to the Torah, this is the best form that a nation can rule itself and function and accomplish great things. So when you take a look at Torah, what do we really have? Well, the first thing, obviously, is the laws, the legislature. Well, who's the one who does the laws? And the answer is God. Man basically does not do the laws. It's God in the form of the Torah. The Torah is nothing more basically, then that branch of government of the Jewish people that really is the legislature, and that is the Torah, and that's God. God legislates the laws. Now, it is true also, obviously, that there are many laws that have to be made as time goes on in order to support and protect the laws of the Torah. And these are rabbinical enactments Right, there are rabbinical enactments and preventive measures. They call takonis and gzeris, that the rabbis make. You see, so in that sense, 
part of the legislative ability is taken over by the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin works together with the Torah. They don't make new laws in the sense that this is what they want. I mean, they really, in a certain sense, are empowered to do that. For instance, the Sanhedrin created the concept or the enactment of Purim and Hanukkah and so on. But most of the job of the Sanhedrin is to protect the Torah itself, that it has to be observed. And those are the Gezeras, you know, the, uh, the preventive measures that the Sanhedrin enacted in order that the Torah should be observed and not be violated. But the real legislature, obviously, is the Torah. And of a secondary nature is the Sanhedrin, you see. So that's the legislature, you see. Now, the judiciary is also the Sanhedrin, you know, especially all the difficult and really complex cases. They are decided by the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin also has that function to be a judiciary of the Torah. But their job is to interpret the Torah itself. So they are the authority concerning what the Torah says. That's also part of their function. So they are the judiciary, you see. Now, who is the executive? Who is that person that is supposed to, you know, uh, protect the Torah, make sure that's observed? And the answer is, it's a king. There is a mitzvah in the Torah, Soim Tosim Olecho Melech, to appoint a king, you see. So besides the Torah, and besides the Sanhedrin, you also have a king. It's a mitzvah, say, to appoint a king. And that king would be the executive branch, so to speak, and he would make sure that all the laws of the Torah are observed. You see, so this is the government that the Torah says has to be formed. But notice that the, ones, the one who makes the laws is not the king, you see. And the real laws are not made by the Sanhedrin, except in an auxiliary capacity. The one who makes the, Torah, the laws is the Torah itself, you see. <clears throat> And the, obviously the important concept of all of this is that the Torah is divine. In any case, as I was saying, the, the crux or the, the, the main concept of all of this is the laws. But the laws are divine. That's the difference. They're not made by man except in a secondary way by the Sanhedrin. The laws are promulgated by God. And therefore, they are divine. And you can't question them. If you understand them, great. If you don't understand them, they're chukim, statutes. But nevertheless, they all have the, the power, okay, the authority of God himself. And this is really the whole concept of Har Sinai, you see, where God gave all the laws that allow the Jewish people to survive, to flourish as a nation, you see. But the Rabbanishalam, God did give the power of the Sanhedrin to be the judiciary, you see. And that's, in many ways, that's its main function. I mean, there are other functions also, but certainly that's a very important function. But the executive concept is the king, the melech. And therefore, the Torah says that it is a mitzvah to appoint the melech, right, and uh, that's what the Jewish people did. So, I mean, the, re the first real melech of Klai Yisrael uh, was Moshe Rabbeinu, who was appointed by God. And in that role, he was not only a king, he was also the greatest, the greatest of all the Nevi'im, the prophets, you see. So he was many things all in one. He was the judiciary, he was a Novi, and he also was a king. <clears throat> And then, of course, the first king of the Jewish people was Shaul HaMelech. And, of course, um, uh, Shmuel HaNovi was the one who uh, 
appointed him and so on. <clears throat> this is a very important concept. What the Torah says, in other words, is that the laws have to be divine. They cannot be made by man. You see, because man, first of all, does not see the ultimate truth. They are limited by their logic and their intelligence. And not only that, mankind is biased. You know, everybody wants laws that will satisfy them and help them, you know, uh, proceed in their best interest. So therefore, really, people cannot really make laws that are legitimate and so on, you see. So the, the Torah says that I will make the laws, right? And then you will have a body, the Sanhedrin, to interpret them. But the main one, the, the one who has to execute it, of course, is the king. So we see, therefore, that the concept of, a, uh, of the Torah's government is, has to be by divine authority. That's how it all starts. And then from that emanates the other forms. But in any case, this is the concept of a king. Now, what's also very important is a king does not make any laws. In fact, a king had to wear, he had a very small Sefer Torah, that he actually had to wear on his arm because the king does not make laws. What the king does, right, is that he protects the laws of the Torah and he enforces it that the people should observe these laws. So he himself had to wear, you see, the a Torah on his arm and he always had to have that because all the authority of the king comes from God, comes from the Torah itself. So therefore, this is really the, uh, the, uh, the government that the Torah says should be done, you see. Now, what is interesting is nations, what they do. Like I said, a government has to have those three functions, Right? Somebody has to make laws because mankind has to live by laws or, or else they will destroy themselves. Because every person obviously is biased in terms of what he wants the law to be. He wants it to be in his favor. So they have to have a legislature. Then they have to have an interpretive body, the judiciary. And then they have to have somebody who is going to enforce the laws itself. So nations have adopted that. You see, <clears throat> but what is very interesting is the concept of what nations have done. What does that mean? <clears throat> I'll give an example. A long time ago, and I'm going to use England as an example, because it illustrates the concept of royalty, you see. <clears throat> so the question is, why is there royalty, really? Why should there be uh, a, a royal class that consists of a king and a queen and a prince and a princess, a duke, whatever, right? <clears throat> Why would a nation want this, you see? Why would they want to submit to this type of authority? Now, we know what it is, like I said, we know what it is in terms of the Torah because the Torah has royalty, you know, Shlomo Melech was one of the greatest of the kings, and he was incredible royalty, you see. But why would a nation want that? Well, everybody wants what he called uh, a, uh, somebody to enforce the law. That's true, you see. But that in itself is a very important idea. I think it was uh, in... Um, uh, there was a, a king of England... His name was Henry VIII, very powerful king. And I think he wanted to divorce one of his wives or whatever, and he was Catholic, and the Pope would not allow him to, because basically in Catholicism, there's no such thing as a divorce, as far as I know. <clears throat> so the Pope did not allow him to. So what Henry did, Henry VIII did, he dismissed the Pope. 
He said, I don't need you to tell me what to do, right? Why? So he comes up with this incredible idea, which is an old idea, that I am the king, but more important, I rule by divine right. Words, I am the appointee of God. Therefore, I don't need a pope. So what he did, what Henry did, is he assigned himself the role, the role of the pope. Uh, and what happened was there was formed what's called the Church of England, which is, I think, in Canterbury, and so on, that the king became, the, uh, by divine right, a king. So it wasn't merely, uh, you know, a, a, a person was a king, you know, in order to help the society survive <clears throat> or to help a society exist. No, it wasn't just that, you see. What it became is the king is a king because of divine right. Now, it's God put them there, which means that they have the authority of God himself. <clears throat> now, therefore, this is what the, what's called the, uh, you know, the divine authorship of kingdoms, of kingship, and so on. So this is what he did. And, of course, he created, like I said, the uh, Church of England. I think it's in Canterbury, whatever. And he became sort of the, the pope, you see. And he just dismissed the whole aspect of... Uh, being a pope in Catholicism. In any case, that did something very interesting. <clears throat> and the question is, you know, why does that continue? You know, England has had a long succession of kings and queens. So the question is, why should that continue, really? But I want to point out something which is very important. You see, Whenever a person wants to do something, nobody wants to do something which is recognized as completely evil. People have to justify their acts. Even Hitler, he didn't see himself as evil. On the contrary. So he wrote a whole book called Mein Kampf. And what Mein Kampf does is it portrays the Jewish people as what? As scoundrels as people who are very dangerous, they have destroyed mankind by giving mankind a conscience. They have made mankind into a bunch of wimps. So he wrote a whole book to justify what he wanted to do, which was to kill out all the Jews. Now, why do they have to do that? Why not just kill them and that's it? Because a person doesn't want to see himself as evil. So they will look at the most far-fetched justification or rationale for the evil that they want to do. So Hitler winds up writing a book, Mein Kampf, to justify his act of genocide, which when you think about that, is astounding that he needed to justify it, and he did it, you know, by pointing out all the, the lies that Catholicism has said about the Jews thousands of years you see <clears throat> in fact there was a book written I don't recall the name of the author but the name of the book is called Thy Brother's Blood and he writes and he proves it that the only reason why Hitler was able to get away with what he did you see is because the Catholic Church has vilified the Jewish people terribly, extremely vicious. And they did that, of course, in the, the New Testament. And therefore, what he did is he inculcated in Europe a tremendous, uh, I don't know if I would call it, hatred or inferiority of the Jewish people in the eyes of Catholics. And what Hitler, and therefore what the Catholic Church did, is they created, you know, <clears throat> this value judgment on the Jew that enabled him, Hitler, to get away with killing them. Because the Jew was looked on as grossly inferior, on the contrary, as somebody who wants to, to 
take advantage of mankind as an evil people. I mean, sometimes, I mean, if you take a look sometimes at the, the language that the New Testament uses to describe the Jewish people, it's horrendous. Especially afterwards, you know, you had many uh, priests afterwards and so on that were tremendous anti-Semites and how they vilified the Jews. So this person, uh, I think his name is Malcolm Hayes. But in any case, so he says because of the environment or the climate of denigration and hatred of the Jews, Hitler was able to get away with his program. Because anyway, Catholicism used Jews as, you know, enemies and, and sons of the devil or, or whatever. I mean, to a certain extent, that was mitigated. But deep down, that's still what's held by many Catholics. In any case, you see, so people have to justify when they do evil. And as I pointed out, Hitler had to justify his own actions, you see. <clears throat> so what the world has decided, which in many ways is fascinating, is one of the best ways of justifying evil. And by evil, I mean murder, subjugation, you see, to entrap people or to enslave people. How do you justify what you're doing? Uh, so therefore, they came out with a brilliant solution. If a king has divine right, if a king is divinely chosen by God to be a king, then obviously it means that whatever he decides, whatever he does, is the will of God. It's logical. He is a king by divine right, by the authenticity right, you know, the, and, of, of God, then obviously he's in God's stead in that nation. So whatever he decides clearly is divine, right? It's, uh, it's uh, issued by God himself. If that's the case, uh, then if that country does tremendous evil, then that, and, and, and the evil is promulgated or allowed you see, or tacitly agreed upon by the king, that means this is what God wants. So they're not doing an evil, they're doing God's will. And that is an incredible payoff to have royalty. Because what royalty does is because of this concept of a divine right, what royalty does, it covers the tremendous sinfulness of a nation that wants to brutalize mankind. But when you take a look at what England did, especially in the era of Victor, Queen Victoria, I mean, they, they, they said that, you know, one quarter of the planet Earth was British. They said that the sun never set on, the, on British uh, uh, empire uh, because Britain made it its business to go and subjugate Nations, which they deemed were primitive, you see. But how do you get that done? You don't get that done by, you know, convincing them diplomatically that you'd like to help them. Of course not. You do it for the glory of His Majesty. That's always quoted, you know. Whenever they would go as an army, wherever they went in the time of Queen Victoria, or even before, it was always the will of his or her majesty. But the question is, why did they have to do that? Why did they have to, you know, do it with the authority of the king? And the answer is, because the king rules, or queen, rules by divine right. So what it did is it legitimatized, it legalized, it sanctified whatever they were doing that not only is it not a sin, on the contrary, it's the will of God. Uh, so what we see is something remarkable, that a royalty government, a government that has a king or a queen and so on, is a tremendous device, right, that covers up 
the evil of a kingdom, of, of, of a nation. It's very useful, you see. <clears throat> and that is one of the reasons why I think, you know, why nations have kings. It's not just the, a secondary reason is an ego status because they feel great about themselves because they have the pomp and the pageantry of kingship, which it is. There's a tremendous amount of tradition, pomp, pageantry, like I said, you know, of that nation. And therefore that nation feels good about itself. In many ways it's an ego trip. <clears throat> but like I said, there's something much more profound because since a king rules by divine right or a queen, then they can do anything as long as it's agreed upon by the king or queen because they rule by divine right, which means is that it is authorized, their actions, even if they be terrible evil, is authorized by God. This is of tremendous benefit to a nation, you see? And that is why I believe uh, many nations, especially England, you see, uh, will, will maintain the, the whole concept of royalty. And this has been going on, what, almost a thousand years, you see, um, ever since William the Conqueror in 1066. But in any case, this is the benefit of royalty. Take a look at the difference between the Torah's version and the, uh, and the, and the secular, the uh, national version, see. <clears throat> the problem is, in the, um, or, or rather, when you look at the Torah, you realize the king has no ability to legislate laws, except in a rabbinical sense. You know, if he feels a nation needs a law to help them observe the Torah, then he will induce the Sanhedrin, let's say, to come together and think about it and pass the law. Uh, but his position basically is exec executive, where he executes the law, you see. But he himself has to adhere to the Torah. He doesn't make the laws. That's why he has to wear, actually wear, a Sefer Torah on his arm. Because he himself is a subject, right, of the, the Torah itself. Uh, therefore, it keeps a king straight, you see. But once you allow a king to make the laws, you see, and, and you say that he has divine right, right, uh, then automatically what's going to happen is that that nation, right, can now do whatever they want because they have the agreement, right, of the king. And since he rules by divine right, whatever they are doing is not evil. On the contrary, it can be viewed as righteous. So therefore, the concept of royalty is of incredible benefit to a nation that does evil, you see. So that's a very important concept, the usefulness of royalty to a nation. Besides, you know, ego, there's this usefulness that they can do whatever they want and feel as if they're righteous. <clears throat> and by the way, that's also a very important idea. So in that sense, you know, I heard that, what does it cost to maintain the royalty in England? So last year's budget, this I heard, it cost England 193 million pounds could you imagine that almost one-fifth of a billion dollars to maintain you know the entourage of the queen you know all her goings and the whole uh, you know trappings of royalty obviously it's a fortune to maintain you see so the question is why do they do that it's a lot of money 193 million pounds it's a phenomenal amount of money. To do what? To maintain the royalty status of a couple of people? I mean, how many people are really part of the royal family? You know, what do we have? Like 5, 10, 15? Why do they do that? And I believe because in a certain way, it's a bribery. 
England needs royalty so they can do whatever they want. You see, they can brutalize many countries, right? So what they do is they bribe people to be royal, and therefore they rule by divine authority. So that legitimatizes whatever evil they do. It's sort of like a contract, you see, between two parties. One party is the nation that now has a cover-up for whatever they do, that it's not evil on the contrary. It is righteous. And the other is the royal family. They get to live in an unbelievable style. I mean, it's incredible. Could you imagine being a queen, right, for 70 years? Imagine the amount of honor that she received, the special attention, right, the, the, the benefits of, of, of living, the living arrangements and so on. I mean, which woman doesn't dream about being a queen, right? Like that's why there are many what's called royal watches. Because by watching the royal family, it's a vicarious thrill or way of experiencing, you know, the uh, majesty of royalty and so on. So look what's going on here. The king provides a tremendously useful purpose by allowing a nation to do a tremendous amount of evil because that person rules by divine right. And that nation will prop up the royalty, right, and what that does, and allow these people, a group of people, right, to serve as royals, it will enable them to be covered by the royalty for whatever they do, you see. Which is really, very, in many ways, very interesting, and so on, you see. And that's exactly what happened. You know, whenever England went to war, they, they've been warring all over the place, and so on, you know, uh, and subjugating nations who were very brutal. And you just, uh, just looked at what they did to the American colonies before America became a nation, <clears throat> you see. And they would have that. It was a tremendous way to get away with whatever they want to do and, and feel righteous at the same time, <clears throat> you see. And like I said, the great tragedy I feel, you know, is that the royals of England, you know, are deceived because they don't realize that they provide England with the ability to do tremendous amount of evil and think that they're righteous and to think that they're doing God's plan. That's what it does. So in that sense, I believe it's tragic, you see. And maybe if they got rid of their royalty, maybe they would feel that they can't do what they want. They have to, you know, observe the laws of the Bible, as they call it, and so on. You know, you can't just cover it up by having royalty agree with what you're doing. Anyway, those are very important ideas, thoughts, about the concept of royalty and how it aids and abets a nation to justify their actions. You see, even though the actions are terrible, I mean, you go through history, I mean, Germany had kings... Right, all the nations of Europe basically had kings. And when you read Jewish history, you know, um, especially the last thousand years, you are absolutely appalled at what these kings and queens did to the Jewish people. It was terrible what they did. And they're kings and queens, you see, and they all feel as if they are divinely, you know, authorized to do whatever they want. What a cover. In any case, just see the difference between a kingdom, according to Judaism, where the king himself must submit to the laws of the Torah, you see. Because God makes the laws, not man. And therefore the laws are just righteous and holy, you see. Uh, so that we can be sure. 
that this is the greatest form of government, you see. And if a king allows himself to submit to the Torah, really submit, then that's the best form of government, you see. Part of the problem with democracy is what Jefferson felt, the tyranny of democracy. Because all democracy means is that the people determine the government, you see, and it's not hereditary. It's the people. The problem is, is that the people can determine that by a majority. And what happens if the majority of a nation is evil, right? So that's called the tyranny of the majority, you see? And the founding fathers were terribly afraid of that, of this ability of a democracy to become tyrannical. And that's exactly what happened, you know? So that's the first idea. Just because there's a democracy doesn't mean that that nation will be just and righteous. Not at all, you see. So that's a very important idea, you see. And the second problem is that democracy is not a good form of government because most people don't have the time to investigate if their representatives are doing a good job. They don't have the time. Everybody struggles to make a living. If you look at the average, I heard that there was a a poll, whatever, that more than, I think, 50 or 60% didn't even know that America has three branches of government. You see the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. Most people are really not informed about the government and what it can do. Why is that? Because most people are struggling to survive and to flourish. So how can you rely on them to choose the right people? I mean, take a look at what's happening to America. America's dying. You know, this is not the America that we knew or we grew up in and so on. And this is a democracy. The problem is people keep voting for the wrong people, for the wrong people all the time. I mean, just take a look. We know the names of the people trying to destroy America, you see? I mean, the, the, the crime rate of America is beyond appalling. You see the inflation. But the crime wave, that's the first function of government, is safety. Then you have the borders are open, you see? And that is destroying America. The amount of drugs coming in is killing people, you see. So how can the government do nothing about that? Anyway, one can go on and on, you see. But I, I want to bring these ideas, the concept of royalty, how in many ways you know, your royalty you know, will allow a nation to become evil and get away with it, so to speak. Uh, you see, and in many ways, uh, the royalty is bribed to be there for the country so they can do their evil. And it's tragic, I believe it's tragic, that Queen Elizabeth II doesn't realize that she was used. You know, she thinks probably what an honor to serve. She's right. She does serve the British people by allowing themselves to cover up any of the terrible deeds that they've done in the past and so on. So in a certain sense, I feel sorry for her that she's a victim, you see, by being a royal of the British people. And it's not just true of Britain. It's true of many countries, you see. It's unfortunate. But if you want to be honest, this is how you will see it. You see, and everybody's in a delusion in terms of the pomp and the splendor of royalty. It's all delusional, you know. But if you think about it, right, if you sat down with God and asked him, what's your idea of royalty and so on? Of course God will say, royalty without the Torah, royalty without the laws promulgated by me is ridiculous. All it is is going to be used as a cover for people to do evil 
and feel okay about it. Any case, that's what I thought was important to know uh, in terms of uh, what, what, what's, what is happening today. Any questions? Yes. Go ahead. So, why does Hashem allow those nations um, that feel that they are divinely authorized by God to do whatever they want? Why does Hashem allow them to to uh, basically go through with it? Well, it's the same. The, that question is the same question as why does God allow people to be evil? That's the concept of free will. God created a world. He has given laws, you see, and he wants people to know those laws and be righteous, you know, and uh, that, that's their job. And he will not interfere because he wants them to have free will. You know, look, they don't have to do what they're doing, you know. They don't have to murder people or deny, as in case of England, to deny Jews entry into a land that he gave the Jews by the white paper, you know, in 1939, especially after the Kristallnacht, when it became obvious that Hitler wants to kill all the Jews. He's not going to deny them that. But also, you have to remember one thing, that God has a plan. And there are many ways to get to the fruition of that plan, you see. So what he does is he will allow people to be evil because in some way they will ultimately uh, uh, allow the plan to succeed. We don't understand that, you see. Look, the, cla- the classic was Purim with Homan. God wanted the Jews to do tshuva because they ate at the meal, so he allowed Homan to grow great Right? and to begin to exercise his evil. So Haman was a device, a tool, to bring the Jews to Tshuva. So he allowed him to do his evil, you see. Now, we don't know any of this, but this is part of the plan. That's why to God, really, you know, all things must bring about the completion of the plan, even, even when it's done from evil. You see, uh, and uh, if a nation needs the cover of royalty to do its evil, well, then God uses that nation's ability to do evil as a kapora, as one of the ways of bringing an atonement to Jews. You see, he doesn't tell the nation to do evil, but he will use that nation's desire to do evil in order to bring an atonement for Jews if that's what they need. You see? So that's what God does. He knows exactly what he has to do. And in order to bring the plan to completion, he allows nations or people to do evil. Because in a certain sense, they satisfy his goal. Of course, they all get punished because they freely choose to do that. But that is why. You see? Remember one thing. Everything that is done can only succeed if it advances the plan further. If it does not advance the plan further, then it does not succeed. God will stop it. There's a great deal of evil that is blocked because it doesn't advance the plan. And God therefore says, you can choose freely, but I will interfere with that choice. So it has to advance the plan. The problem is we don't understand what advancement of the plan is. We don't know. But God knows, obviously, and he knows the infinite amount of reckonings, what has to be done. So whatever advances the plan of creation, what's called the tikkun process, he allows the evil to be done. Whatever doesn't, for whatever reason, he will block that evil. He does this all the time. Rabbi, the queen must have had some zahut that she was able to reign for 
70 years. And Hashem led her. Yes, right, yeah. England wanted a queen, and he allowed her to do. Why she, we don't know. We don't know what Gilgul she was, who she is, what type of incarnation she is. We don't know. But whatever it was, God chose her that if England wants the queen, she was it. What is funny, because she should never have been queen. You see, her uncle, uh, I think it was Edward VIII, he's the one that abdicated because he married an American divorcee. So automatically, her father, uh, George VI, he became king of England, putting Elizabeth in line to be the queen. So really, she should never have been queen. It should have been, you know, uh, Edward's uh, 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 kids, whoever that would have been. Should have been the king or queen. But when he abdicated, he gave it over to his brother, George the Sixth. So that put Elizabeth in line to be the crown princess. Why God did that, we don't know. Because we don't really know who she really was, and so on. And what's interesting also... I can't hear you. What? It's like Queen Esther. She never was supposed to be queen, and Hashem made her the queen. Right. Exactly. So God chooses who will rule a nation. I find that interesting that she ruled for 70 years. And the concept of 70 years is a concept of completion. It's almost as if this is the completion of the royalty of Esau. One can look at it that way. And because 70, number 70, always means a hashlama, a tashlam, a completion of some sort. See, so I find it interesting that she ruled for 70 years. You see. Okay. Rabbi. So if Ma- if Mashiach is going to be the next king, what? right? If Mashiach, Who? If Mashiach yeah. is is the next, so to speak, king, but he's going to be showing us the, uh, the revelation of the, of the Shekhinah. So really, he's only uh, a tool to show us the, the, the true king. Right. Same thing, exactly. So yes. then, what, what is his... He technically doesn't really have authority or anything like that. It's really... what Basically, how does his role fit in your description? That's my question. <clears throat> His role will be the same, basically, as Moshe Rabbeinu. The function of Moshe Rabbeinu, if you think about it, was to convey the will of God to the Jewish people, which obviously is the Torah. That was his role, you see, to bring the Torah to the Jewish people as a device to do the tikkun. Now, he also had another role, you know, is to... Uh, like I say, is to bring the Jews to Israel, of which he could not enter, for whatever reason, so on. Mashiach, in many ways, is the same thing. The major role of the Mashiach ben Yosef, certainly, is to teach the Orishan to the Jewish people, to raise the status of the Jewish people to an unbelievable state, you see. And that's what his role is. You know, it's, it's not to promulgate new laws, you see, and the role of Mashiach ben David is executive. He will rule as a king that executes the will of God. You see? But it's going to be a different type of, uh, you know, experience. You know, because obviously the presence of God will be known and revealed to everybody, you know. It's, Mashiach, it's, yeah. Mashiach and David doesn't reign for so long, it, it sounds like. Well, he, you know, like I said, the, the, the Gemara says that the world will only last for 6,000 years, which means it will end in 2240, right? So that's 217 years to go. And that's it. And that's the end of mankind's ability to rule itself. You see. And then after that begins what's called the 7,000th year. 
And that is the beginning of the change, zikuch, right? The purification of the physical to become spiritual. The entire reality changes, you see. And, uh, and God is revealed in terms of his unbelievable presence and his awesome unity and oneness. It's, a, it's not the same reality, you see. So, you know. so, so Mashiach and David, he still reigns in the 7,000 year? No, he's gone. He's gone. Everything is gone. Okay, so then if you, oh, you, you always said that Tehiyat uh, HaMetim, it takes 210 years. Right. So that's in the year 2030. It starts. Right, yes, which is, what is that? Seven years from now. In seven years from now, right. So right. if... If, if Mashiach ben Yosef has all these things to do, and if this next year is not, um, would we say, Yovel, because doesn't Mashiach ben David have to come after Yovel? Well, yes. I mean, we hope it's Yovel, right? We do. So if, if he comes in the next cycle of seven years, then he only reigns for a very small amount of time. Well, yeah. Look, 213 years. Or 210 years, oh, whatever. Oh, he still reigns while we wake up. Yes, as people will be rising from the dead for the yes. next 210 years, right. Oh, he's reigning. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, he will reign for, let's assume he comes in, in a couple of years from now, whatever. So his reign will last up to the year 2240. He will be king oh. of the world. For two hundred, at least two hundred and ten years, and I believe by looking at the the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, you you begin to understand how the world will view a king and what she was. Every Jew will have that stature. We don't realize that. Because the Jews did the tikkun. And therefore, every Jew that was part of that tikkun will be the, have the status of a major king. Right? The pomp and the glory and the prestige, right, that you witness by Queen Elizabeth II will be true of every single Jew. Because he brought the tikkun which is the ultimate purpose of the whole creation, you know, that's what's going to happen. <clears throat> so God is showing us what every Jew will be like in the future. So, A couple of hundred years. So Rabbi, so Mashiach ben David comes. We're all still alive. And then he kills the Satan. And then we all do have a Tehiyat HaMetim. He's still awake and waiting for everyone to wake up. And as the years go by, he'll be reigning over more and more people. Yes, right. That's right. <clears throat> as people get up, he will be reigning over more and more people. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Does it say like we all just drop to the floor and then eventually we just wake up from the floor like how does it does, does it say anywhere in the Gemara like the actual part well what, what, uh, what, what's supposed to happen everybody has to die correct you know in order to the body to decay and the Zoyama then disappears and then they all resurrect so they'll be dead for those people who will be alive when the Mashiach comes right so they will die, and they, but they'll, they'll only be dead for about two hours. Who, and then they get up. Um, wait, so what? Whoever, lives, whoever lives during the time of the Mashiach, they're only going to die for two hours. Right. That's it. So if we make it through the times of the Mashiach, we're zochet to only die for two hours. Right. Apparently that's what it seems. Right. They were dead for how long exactly? They were not dead very long, right? And they got up. It was all tchesamisim, right? And then that Zohama left. 
And then the Zoyama left, right? Nifsika Zoyama Shul the Gemara says, that the Zoyama of the snake, Nifsika, ceased to have an active influence over the Jew, which is miraculous, which is uh, spectacular. And that will certainly happen in the time of Mashiach. Look, it's going to be a glorious era. You know, it says that everybody will become old. Everybody's going to live, uh, you know, for 150 years. And it'll be, it'll be an unbelievable time. So it's like living in Gan Eden. It's really what it is. That's the last era of this world will basically be a physical Gan Eden. Actually, it's not even physical. Half of it is without Zoyama, so therefore it's not even physical. You know? So, when Mashiach ben Yosef comes, meaning like everyone knows him, from that point on, people could still die? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, as long as there's Zoyam in the body, people will die. So, we'll still have it be people being dead until um, Mashiach ben David uh, appears? Right. Yeah. Once he, once he appears, you know you know you're in, and you're only gonna die for two hours. Uh, yes. Yeah. Once he appears, then the whole concept of death is ended, because the you know the only way a person dies is because of the sultan, the malachamovis. Well, if there's no malachamovis, right, then uh, you know you you don't you you don't really die because of the malachamovis. You you die just to get rid of the zoyama. You know? Yeah. So, so Rabbi, when do you think, do you think that this something is really happening, or is just... I can't hear you, what? Do you think something big is going to happen now with all these things happening around the world, and... Well, one thing, look, I, I've, I've, oh, oh, you know, over the weeks, whatever, I've said the world is incredibly corrupt. And the world gets worse every day. The morality of the world is incredible. It's in the pits. And there's no way it can be reversed, which I mentioned, because it's become constitutional. You know, and the world is saturated with physicality, with pleasure. Everybody's into Oilem Hazer. Think about that. How many people think about Oilem Habo? You know, when a person wakes up, how many people think about becoming spiritual. What's on their mind is more money, more pleasure, more power, you know, more cover. That, that's what's on everybody's mind. So it's almost like spirituality is almost gone. You know, it's not even a, a goal of mankind anymore, you see. So what we're really looking at is what's called, you know, speed up the end. And that's what's really happening now. That's why there's so much sorrows, so much problems that people have, because everybody has to be up to speed. Justice has to be satisfied in order for the Mashiach to come. And once he comes, it'll be a, a, a completely different way of life. It'll be absolutely magnificent. That's what it's going to be. Rabbi, if everybody, if all the Jews make tshuva and all the prophecies say that Hashem guarantees we're all going to make tshuva, yes. so then we're going to all be righteous. Right. Right? If, yeah. So then, so then do we all merit to be alive for Mashiach ben David? Well, yes. All the Jews will be alive when Mashiach ben Yosef, well, certainly Mashiach ben David, right, <coughs> comes. Well, because that's going to be Tchias Amesim. And once you get up from the dead, you don't go back. No, nobody dies anymore. Right? It's over with. Right. So that's, that's the end. But it's basically when you wake up is how much you're going to experience that. Yeah, exactly. How you wake up and when you wake up, right? You know, uh, there are people that are going to wake up toward the end. And then there are people that are going to wake up in the beginning. So they're going to live for like 210 years, you know? <clears throat> you know? 
so it would be incredible. I mean, in a certain sense, think about that. Imagine if you were a king. What would every day look like to you? Right? It would be glorious. Right? Everything you want to do is done. Right? Every wish is done. That's what's going to happen to the Jews, you know. It'll be a different type of world where nothing fails and everything succeeds. We cannot even imagine that type of world. Let's see. Rabbi, also, you know the mini Sefer Torah that you said Mashiach wears on his, on his arm? Yeah, the ki- a king wears on his arm, right. Okay, so didn't Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky Alava Hashalom, didn't he have one? They made one for him? I don't know. Is that the same? I don't know. I, I have never heard anything like that. You know. Well, obviously he's not Mashiach because he's gone. Right. You know. Right. Okay. You know. Anyway, those are the uh, those are some of the ideas I want to transmit about kingship.